Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this morning. As always, a chance to open up your word and to be drawn in by the Holy Spirit to what is there before us. Father, open our hearts to action. Clear our minds from distraction. And give us, Father, a heart to be the obedient servant you call us to be. I praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin this morning, as I said, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already is past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. He begins in this chapter with a therefore. When you see the word therefore, you stop and ask, what's it there for? And that's, that's trite, but it's so true. Every time you see that word, you're looking at a turn in the scripture, in the text, intended to bring to bear some fact on your life. If you agree with what I just taught, Peter's saying, then you're going to have to do something. You know, it's, it's, it's like a lot of things in life. We will often agree intellectually with somebody, but in our heart of hearts, we have no intent on actually living out according to that agreement. It's lip service is the term we give to that kind of thinking, where we are willing to nod our head and agree and say, yes, you're right, and then go back to doing what we were already doing. That's, that's not the kind of expectation that's in the letter here now. The, the opposite is in view, that we would do something. He, he refers back in ch- to the end of chapter 3 as he begins chapter 4 here. And he says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. What's he referring to there? Well, nothing more than what he just got through explaining in that interesting set of verses we studied last week. How Jesus literally took a walk in our place. And as we studied last week, what he did was more than just suffer, more than just suffer and die, but suffer, die, and then descend to take a walk that is due all of us if we were to have to take it on our own. And in that walk, he walked through the process of judgment for sin, only to be resurrected later by God's power so as to show the proof that God has power over death, that we can trust in that power for our own resurrection. But only after he had atoned for sin. I believe as you read the book of Hebrews, there's evidence in the book of Hebrews to suggest that part of that walk he took, which Peter doesn't describe, is to actually enter into the holy place in the heavenly tabernacle and to put his own blood, sprinkle his literal blood on the literal heavenly altar to atone for all of mankind in that moment. That in fact, that was the true moment of atonement in the heavenly place, mirrored by the sacrificial system given to us in the way the Jews practice it in their tabernacle. In any event, he walked that walk. That's what Peter's talking about here at the beginning of chapter 4 when he says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, since he did what he did, he then goes on to say, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? At first glance, you might be tempted to say, well, does he mean I have to walk that same walk as Christ did? Arm myself with the same purpose. The word arm here, it's a military term, actually, hapalizo. It means to equip a soldier, which is why we say arm in this case. It means to be ready for a battle, to take on the necessary armament for a battle. He says, arm ourselves with what? With what? Arm ourselves with what? The only conclusion you can draw coming out of chapter 3 is to arm ourselves with the death of Christ. Now, how do I do that? 
How does that actually play out in my life? Well, consider for a moment what Christ did. What he did was he took the penalty for our sin. He went through the process you and I had due us because of our own sin. He's done that work. It doesn't need to be repeated. Peter himself said at the end of chapter 3, he did it once for all, remember? So there's no repeating of that process necessary. But what follows from that process now is what Peter refers to at the very beginning of chapter 4. He says, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, Jesus walked the first part of the walk for us. He took on the suffering, if you will. He took on the death process, the condemnation that was due for you and I. But that, Peter says, will never need to be repeated. It was a once-for-all sacrifice because it was sufficient to cover all. There's no more need. But that part having been done, Peter now looks to you and I and says, we identify now by faith in Christ. We are in Christ. He walked that walk. We shared in it. We gained the benefit of that walk into death by being associated with Him. But because we don't have to repeat that part, where does our participation kick in? It kicks in at the point after the resurrection. In other words, as Peter puts it in chapter one, uh, 4, verse 1, because we have suffered in the flesh vicariously by association with Christ, we now share as well with Him in a sinless life. Not in reality yet. That comes at our glorification. But in the meantime, Peter says, live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. You see how he's putting us together with Christ? He's saying, we died through Christ and experienced death in Him so as to not have to repeat it ourselves. But now, we are to live as He lived, like Him sinlessly, mirroring Him even the more now. That's the call of the Christian. So that if you share in that death by faith, you are also obligated, required by God, to share in His obedience. And Christ's obedience was to live a sinless life and then go to the cross according to the Father's will. Our life of obedience is to keep His commandments. And in keeping His commandments, mirror Him to this world to be that ambassador once again. And He says, live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. I think Peter's point in the second half of verse 1 really captures for him a principle of life as well, a principle of what he expects to see in the lives of Christians. He says, the one who is suffering in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is often misused. It's often misused to imply that if I suffer enough, I put myself outside sin's reach. Penance is the way they would describe this. That if I pay penance, or for those who have died, going to purgatory, the place they've imagined for where penance can be paid after death, these are things they've come up with essentially on the basis of this one verse. That if somebody is, suffers enough, they can overcome sin through their suffering. That penance, in other words, can cleanse you of sin. That's a complete misuse of the text. And it's a complete ignorance of the context in which Peter has been teaching this one verse. Suffering here is a reference to the one who suffers for doing what's right. It's the suffering that's been in view going all the way back into the middle of chapter 3. It's not like he's just thrown this out on the page for the first time. He's been talking about suffering now for a while. That's the suffering we're talking about. Not self-imposed suffering. Not someone picking up a whip and slapping themselves on the back with it. Not a suffering of self-denial. I'm going to give up all this for 40 days or all of this for a year or all of this for whatever. And by my self-sacrificial denial, I am going to have made myself more holy in some external sense. Therefore, God is more pleased with me. That's the nonsense that's taught under this kind 
of, of excuse or this kind of defense, that suffering somehow equals no sin. Peter's not saying that. So when the church in his day finds itself suffering at the hands of Nero for being true to their Christian walk, they can be assured, at least in the midst of their suffering, that that is evidence in itself that they are obeying God's will, that their obedient suffering in the face of persecution gives them uh, encouragement in the moment to know that for that moment they are doing the right thing and that is actually the cause of their suffering. Now, this is not a rule that you can turn backwards. You can't say, every time I suffer, I'm doing what's right. No, you can suffer for doing something wrong, too. Remember, he's already stated that principle as well. But when you are doing what's right and you are suffering for doing what's right, you can know that at that moment, God, as he looks down on you, is seeing you as one who is walking in accordance with his will, which is the definition of living without sin, at least for the moment. You see how this would be a little bit encouraging to that group? Not, not, not in the sense that it puts that issue out of mind, not in the sense that it can um, make up for the fact that persecution was a re- reality for them, but maybe more in an eternal sense. You know, as this tidal wave of, of trial and tribulation is going to come upon them, they could at least rest in the fact that they were living obediently and therefore with an assurance that God was finding favor with them. That whatever they may have experienced in that physical sense, in that short-term difficult trial, whether it resulted in their death or not, when it's over, it's over. And then eternity begins. And at the beginning of eternity, all that favor now comes to bear in eternal reward for having been obedient. And forevermore, they have with them the marks of that obedience in the form of God's blessing in that new realm and whatever He has promised for them for that obedience, for you and I as well. The momentary suffering, in other words, pales in comparison to the eternal joy and eternal reward that is available to those who would be obedient. That's an encouragement. But did you notice? It's only an encouragement if you have eyes for eternity. If your eyes, if my eyes are in the here and now, and this world is what we put in our concern and our desire and our faith in, if the, if the status of our bank account or if the, if the nature of our friendships and our family relationships or our job or you know, our home or anything in this world, if that consumes our attention and concerns, then the moment persecution arrives for the sake of our faith, for the sake of doing what's right, then we're going to feel immense pressure to put that obedience aside so as to remove the persecution because it's just mucking up all our plans. It's just getting in the way of all those life's pursuits that we've made our priority. But on the other hand, if our priority is extremely, externally, uh, external to this world, entirely eternal, then it's no less painful. I don't want to make it sound Pollyannish. It's not as though it doesn't matter that those things come upon us. It's just that we keep them in the proper perspective. And they never rise to the degree in our life that they could cause us to step out of obedience. That's the challenge. The challenge is not to avoid them or not to avoid them. The challenge is to walk obediently despite them. Secondly, when he says here now that likewise we must, quote, suffer in the flesh in order to cease from sin, he goes on to explain exactly what that means, right? He says, no longer for the lusts of men. To abstain from the lusts of the flesh, from those things in our life that we know are unholy. Try doing that. And not just for 40 days, but as he puts it here, the rest of the time in the flesh, until you die, in other words, physically. That's the expectation. Not some petty, silly, external you know, game as I would see it, where we deny ourselves something because somehow we now feel more holy for having done so. But rather, if you really want to deny yourself, deny yourself the lust of the flesh and do it until you die, and now you're actually understanding what the expectation is here out of Scripture. 
And I, by the way, I am not trivializing or minimizing someone who has a personal conviction to withdraw from something in their life, to, to abstain from something in their life, whatever that thing may be. Hey, if that's a conviction on your heart, obey that conviction. But understand its purpose and make sure you understand its source. And don't confuse this scripture or others to tell you that somehow by doing that you've made yourself more holy. We're holy by Christ's blood and by his sacrifice, not by our own merit. So we can't achieve anything by our denial, except that perhaps it might draw us closer to him in obedience. And if that's the case, then go for it. That's a good purpose. He says, I love the way he says verse 3. I read a sarcastic tone in this. I don't know if you see it as well. But he says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. I love the way he puts that, right? He's not saying you had some allocated amount and you've used it up. But for sure, you've used up whatever you used, okay? It's sarcastic. He's saying, look, if there ever was a time to live like that, it's past. He says, those days are past. What should take its place? What is he now expecting out of you and I? He says that we should now live not for these lustful pursuits, which I'll talk more about here in a moment, but he says, for the will of God. This is radical stuff. Remember the therefore again? Here's your, here's your point on the therefore. If you agree with all that he said in chapter 3, Jesus took this walk for me, he died for me, he paid his, the price of sin for me. If you believe all that, then what are you prepared to do but live for the will of God? I'm convinced in my own life, and I think this is true for all Christians, once we are saved, scriptures like this and others I could point you to tell me that we now have an obligation to reset our life's course. If you're like me and you were saved as an adult, which is my experience, then you know what this is like. This is the case of someone who was going down a given path in their life, a path that the world had defined for them as right. And then the cross intervenes and salvation comes. And if you continue down the path you were already going down, then you are living outside God's will. This is radical stuff. You know, I think the conclusion I draw from this personally, maybe you share in this, I don't know, is that once we are saved, we now have an obligation to reset our life's course. We rechart our life's path, at least to some degree. Before, we may have made decisions and set goals based on what we liked, or based on what we wanted, or what felt good, or what seemed good, or what pleased our ego, or you name it. None of those rationales make sense anymore to those who have come to know Christ. Now we belong to Christ, all that changes. Now, I'm not saying we sell everything and move to the other side of the world. It doesn't require that externally we follow some pattern that we think in some way validates the Christian. But it does mean that in every decision we make, we're not using the world's standards to evaluate what to do or what not to do. We live for but one purpose, the will of God. That's what marks a Christian from the rest of the world. What a dramatic change that should be for every Christian. Because we're not just talking here about refraining from the pleasures of the flesh. This isn't that self-denial thing again. This is about resetting our priorities. It means that we not only take captive our thoughts and not only take take control of our actions, but we align everything in our life with God's will, which then requires first that we know His will, that we seek it, that we know it, and then we follow it. How do you do that? Well, the basics of the Christian walk are not that complicated, really, when you get right down to it. I won't know God's will, much less follow it, if I'm not engaged in Bible study as a general rule. However you choose to do it, but if the Word of God is not open and before you on a regular basis, you know, the way I put it is this. If God went to so much time and trouble through so many lives to produce this written work, 
and then we set it aside and seek his will through other means, how likely is he to satisfy our curiosity when we go outside of his provision? You know, think about this. If he was willing to give us the full revelation of his will apart from his word, then he's denied the sufficiency of his own word. And if he's denied the sufficiency of his own word, he's actually working counter to his own purpose. It is not the case in my experience that he will do that. That he may use other means of, of supporting what's in his word, certainly. But first and foremost, he went to the trouble of giving us his word so that we would have what we needed to know. So if we don't devote ourselves to it, I mean, why are we surprised we don't necessarily find what we're looking for elsewhere? I don't think it's magical. I think it's the same things we've always heard. I think it's prayer and Bible study and fellowship of the saints and trust that those disciplines have their good and, and, and purposeful work in our life without us having to manufacture the outcome, but trusting God to accomplish it through those tools. It's amazing to me how often people say, I wish this would be better in my life, or I wish I could get this straight, I wish I could overcome this problem. And then you ask them the basics of what they do in their Christian walk, and all the basics are missing. They have all the peripherals, but all the basics are missing. Prayer is hardly present. Bible study is a casual thing whenever I have time on my calendar. Fellowship with the saints kind of comes and goes depending on whether I slept in on Sunday or not. I mean, the point is, if everything else kind of works out, I get those in my life. But if there's anything that intervenes to stop them, then they're easily jettisoned because the life that we live in this world sort of comes into play and takes over. We have priorities that we have to be willing to displace and replace with the priorities God himself would give us in the ways he reveals it to us in his word or in prayer or in other ways. So what am I talking about specifically? Well... I mean, you know for your own sake what that looks like, but I can give you some examples. It probably means being willing to set aside the trap of a 60 or 70 hour a week job, perhaps, if those extra demands associated with that job pull you out of the priorities God has put on your heart and put in your life for working out His will. If you have a pursuit of personal fitness or a pursuit of a hobby of some kind or a pursuit of something else in your life, but I think the classic pursuit today that I believe puts a barrier between us and the will of God is the pursuit of our children's lives. Living vicariously through our kids. And it's a challenge in my house. I've got young kids. You know, the activities grow and grow and grow and next thing you know, your whole life is around their activities. And, and there's a balance there. My daughter plays tennis competitively, USTA tennis, and she travels around the state. And that's something we feel is growing her in many ways and it's giving her perhaps an opportunity for a college scholarship. These aren't meaningless things. They're, they're perhaps the provision God's going to make available. So we're, we're opening that door and we're walking through it. But there's, there's a balance there. And there's weeks we can't do what we want to do in tennis because of other things that God has laid on our heart. And we, we have to work on that. But I think that's a battle every family has in a different context. As long as we're in touch with God's will for our life, we'll make the right choices more often than not. God will guide us in that decision-making. He just wants an obedient heart who's listening and not so sold out to the world's way of doing life that we've, we've completely eliminated His will from our decision-making. Perhaps it means we don't watch as much TV. Perhaps it means we spend our money differently. I don't know. But the will of God will change your life because we know before we came to faith we were not in His will. Therefore, it stands to reason, just logically, that if you come to faith and now seek His will, something's got to change. What were the odds that in your prior life as an unbeliever, you just happened to be doing everything God wanted you to do? None. So if your life doesn't change, then you know you're still not. Look at Peter's next statements as he defines more specifically. He says, You have pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Let me read on from there. He says, In all this, 
They are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of, God, according to the will of God. He says, these lives that you used to lead, that you now no longer have time for, that the world still is leading, were marked by these lusts. Now, if you're like me, you do this. You come to a list like this, and you breeze through it, and in the back of your mind, as you move to the next verse, you kind of say to yourself, I'm glad I don't do those things, and you just keep going through the text, right? Well, think about it for a minute. Who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians. So that begs a question. If you're not inclined to stop on that verse and see yourself in some of those descriptions, then it means that either Peter had no reason to write this letter because self-evidently Christians don't need to worry about these things, or what may be more likely is they do need to worry about these things and you're just better than all the Christians he was writing to in his day. (laughs) One of those two is true. Otherwise, Otherwise, we have an obligation to stop and look at the text and say, well, if he wrote these things to Christians and I'm no better than the average, then I better take a a little inventory of my life for a moment and make sure that I haven't, in fact, remained behind in some of these behaviors, though I've come to know the Lord. Look at the first one. I'm not going to spend time on each one. There's not time enough to do that. But I want to spend time on at least one because there's one in here more than the others that I think often traps us, even in, and maybe this is particular to today's culture. I, I don't know. Let's look at the first one. Sensuality. This just means a lack of self-restraint in all matters of the flesh. We typically associate it with a sexual context, and that's appropriate. But sensuality goes beyond simply sexual matters. It's a lack of self-restraint in all matters of the flesh. And let me tell you where I think it finds its root today, and sadly in many churches today. There is a, there is a sense, I think, of, of showing off now in the culture, showing off in general, of, of pride in all its forms, but kind of a bravado. We see it. If you watch professional sports, you see it. If you watch kids at play, you see it. I, the thing that saddens my heart the most now is to watch a, a very small league, like Little League or you know, Pee Wee League, and the kids, after they score, mimic what the pros do in showing off and bringing attention to themselves and declaring themselves to be number one and all this stuff. And there's a heart behind that that's not healthy, not in the long run. Sensuality here is this lack of self-restraint. And the showing off I'm thinking of when I see this word in my experience is the way men and women both, often in our culture, want to show off their bodies. That want, they want to gain attention for themselves for how God has blessed them in their appearance. And in, particularly in the way they dress. So provocative dress might be one example of sensuality that would, not, that would mark the world and the world's approach to life, but should not mark the life of a Christian anymore. If you think about it, if someone is physically attracted to somebody under the wrong circumstances, it's sin. So to wear provocative clothing, and I'm talking men or women, to wear provocative clothing is nothing more than an attempt to cause others to sin. It has to be seen in that sense, because only one person in the world God has selected for any human being to be married to, by his will anyway. And unless that's the one and only person who's going to see you that day, and it's going to lead to marriage immediately afterward you're pretty much setting up somebody for a fall. I often tell our own kids, I have a daughter who's 15, and so this is an issue in our home, but modesty is the term we use, and modesty is not about how you look. Modesty is about what effect you have on other people. And if you have their heart's interests in mind, then you're going to consider what you're looking like from the perspective of what it's doing to others. 
Are you living a life, in terms of modesty, that promotes in others sinful thinking, lustful thoughts, depraved uh, thoughts in the mind? Or do you live in such a way so that you avoid any opportunity to bring that kind of thought to bear in someone else's mind? Now, am I saying we're responsible for other people's thoughts? Not ultimately, but yes, in a way. You certainly have an opportunity to select articles of clothing which are going to minimize the possibility that somebody else will have an impure thought. I know very well that I could dress, let's say in the case of a man, the way I would, what kind of swimsuit I might select, to use that example. Self-restraint in all matters of the flesh carries to how we dress, how we talk, where we find ourselves in terms of, of association, what groups we are willing to associate with. But it's not about making ourselves more holy. It's about trying to avoid a stumbling of our brother or sister. Trying to be the one who would promote living a godly life rather than to be the excuse for someone else to sin. That's the hard attitude. We should not be driven, our lives should not be typified by that kind of behavior. Lusts, as he goes down the list here, that's just depraved cravings and a preoccupation with satisfying those cravings comes in many forms. Drunkenness, the word here in the, in the Greek is, is wine-bibbing, which is an ancient word, kind of an antiquated word, but it's a great word. It means being dripping with wine, as if somebody's dunked you in wine and you come out dripping with it. That's what he means here by drunkenness. Carousing is a, is a party atmosphere. We would call it partying today, carousing. But it's not just a joyful party. I mean, the Jews loved parties. They did it every time they had a wedding, and they threw a huge party for that. Carousing is a, a, a consequence of a party. It's an atmosphere that it contributes to wickedness. It's an atmosphere designed to bring you down. And you know the difference between a healthy party and one that's not. Drinking parties, again, here's alcohol again. I'll, I'll make the point just in passing. Alcohol shows up on a, is a common theme here. The abuse of alcohol, to be specific. Finally, he says, idolatries of all kinds. In their day, it would have been what you typically think of as idolatry. In our day, it takes a more subtle form. Can take everything from uh, fascination with sports or with money or with other kinds of distractions that, by the way they affect us, become our idols. So he's concerned that they might be prone to these behaviors, and I think we have to give similar attention in our own life to whether or not we are prone to these behaviors. What happens if you step away from these lifestyles that typify the, the unbelieving world? In verse 4, he says, the pagan world will pause from their carousing and from their drunkenness just long enough to notice that we didn't join in, that we didn't share in it. You know, the point here is not that we're so uptight or pious, and I, I think that's a better way to describe it, so pious that we can sit back, oh, I don't drink alcohol anymore, I'm a Christian. Oh, I don't, I don't go to parties anymore, I'm a Christian. You know, there's a, pious, there's a wrong way to do this. There's a pious, self-righteous, judgmental view that can, be, that can come into this and it has no effect except to just turn people off to the Christian message. He is not suggesting, and it's clear by the text, he's not suggesting a Christian would abstain from alcohol in order to be separated from the world. You don't see in that list drinking wine. You see in the list examples of excess in every sense of going well beyond any kind of moderation or reasonable consumption of alcohol in the case of alcohol, he's moving to the extreme at every opportunity in that list. And therefore, we need to see it as such. There is a way, I mean, I, I like the example of Christ in this case. Do you know one of the common complaints or one of the common criticisms he suffered under from the Pharisees was that he was drunk. And drunk in the morning, which was particularly offensive because it meant you started early, right? Now, that was a false accusation. 
But like any falsehood, it probably had to have some kernel of truth in the sense that it had to be believable. Otherwise, why levy it against him? So what would have made a, a charge like that against Christ even a little bit believable? My assumption is that he was a fun-loving guy. My assumption was he didn't shy away from a good time. Not a sinfully good time, but he enjoyed being with people. He enjoyed going to weddings. He enjoyed going to the tax collector's home and eating and celebrating with them. He wasn't a stick in the mud. And because of his nature, it was possible for a group of of men who hated him to declare him to be drunk and maybe have an audience for that kind of a charge. Not that he ever was, but that the lie could make some sense because he was a fun-loving kind of person. We don't have to be a stick in the mud in order to follow these commandments. We just have to find a way to look for joy and fulfillment in our walk without drawing ourselves down to the way the the world would find that same fulfillment. Take a look at the end of verse 4 as we move on. What is the effect going to be of their notice? They're going to jump for joy and declare they believe in the Lord, right? I I really like Peter because he's no-nonsense. He's not naive. He understands the realities of the world. Their surprise at our distinction at our self-control, at our refraining from these evil practices, is going to often lead them to malign us, he says. Malign us. I come out of a family where, for the most part, I'm the only believer. And I tell you, I know exactly what this feels like. By the way, I am no standard of righteousness. No, that's not my point at all. But even in the little bit that I have been able to, to see change in my life, and I actually would say I've seen a lot change in my life by God's work, but, but that difference is still so dramatic that among those who do not know the Lord in my family, as they look upon my wife and I and our family, you would think that there would be an embracing of it, right? It makes sense. It obviously shows healthiness in your family. It's been a, a wonderful change in your life. No, that's not what happens. They malign us over it. They malign us over it. And it's interesting to me, you know, we could have different opinions on a lot of things in life. I like chocolate. They like strawberry. I like the Astros. They like the Rangers. It doesn't matter, right? All those things we kind of tolerate among one another. We, we kind of kid about it. We joke about it. Aggies, UT, whatever. But we don't actually make it a serious impediment to friendship. Well, okay, the Aggie UT thing we do. But <laughs> everything else, you know, we can live with each other, right? But somehow the fact that our view of, of what it means to be a Christian differs from theirs is offensive. The two can't be reconciled. It's the elephant in the room you don't talk about. That shows you in a nutshell what he's talking about here. It may very well be the case that your difference is a light to which God will draw men and therefore use you to bring them faith. And he does that all the time. Don't be Pollyannish, though, and assume that that's always going to happen. And then when they malign you, assume that something's wrong. And maybe you've got to change something. Because if they don't like me, somehow I won't have the effect of bringing them to know the Lord. Well, you only have to remember Christ and the apostles to know that that rule is not the right rule. We can't be naive. We can't be unrealistic. We stand as a light in darkness, but only when God opens the eyes and unstops the ears and makes a way in the heart of those around us, only then will our difference bring faith. John chapter 1, verse 5 describes Christ in this way. He says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now listen to verse 13. If you want a little scripture to note in your Bible for how it is that God would bring men to know the truth, look at verse 13 of John 1. He says, Of these who would believe in his name, 
They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. By what means does God bring new birth spiritually? By the will of God. Not by your will, not by the will of a man, but by God's will. It is always a supernatural act of God when and if faith enters into the heart of a human being. The fact that he's willing to do that is self-evident. The field is white for the harvest. There's no doubt of God's intent. But it is also the case that we cannot put ourselves in his place and decide that if I just figure out the right right way to make someone like me or to receive this message or to accept what I'm saying, eventually I can convince them to be a Christian. That would be the will of man, and it doesn't work that way. We can't replace the Holy Spirit. Only when God's done that work in the heart of man or woman will there be faith. Remember in John chapter 15, I've covered these verses at one time in the past, Jesus gave this instruction to his disciples about how to follow in his own footsteps. He says, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. You know, in the words he just spoke, he's not saying that until he showed up, they weren't sinful. No, he's talking about it as in revealing sin. That the world was dark and he was a light that came into the world. And just like in a dark room, a light reveals the details of what's already in the room. And likewise, as Jesus entered the world, he revealed clearly the sin of mankind as his light shined on them. And of course, when you're shown your own sin, you have one of two choices, and only two. It convicts so as to drop you to your knees and ask for forgiveness. Or it repels because you're disgusted with the prospect of someone showing you that you have sinned. And what Jesus said was, they hated me. As John put it, he shone in the darkness, but the darkness didn't comprehend him. So let me give you this challenge. If you think that by your own nature as a Christian, the light that you have shining in you, by the power of God in you, if you think that's strong enough to make people Christian, then I want you to consider that Jesus himself, by his light, could not have achieved that either, apart from the Father's will. That only those that the Father would draw to him were going to come to know the Savior. So if Jesus couldn't do it, what's our chances? Now, does that give us license not to try? Because that's the opposite mistake. The one mistake is to assume that if I just get the right methodology, the right marketing, the right message, I'll eventually make everyone I want to a Christian. That's wrong, because that divorces the power of God from the process. On the other hand, though, the opposite mistake is to say, well, because I know it requires God at work in the heart to make faith, I don't have to do anything. Well, that denies the other side of Scripture, which is that God has chosen to work through men to accomplish that work. He's not dependent on us. But he is desiring to work through us. So if we deny that, we disobey as well. There is a definite balance in Scripture on our role compared to God's role in doing that work. Then might be one of the most controversial verses of this section I'm reading today. He says that the gospel was preached to the dead. In fact, he said, for this reason, the gospel has been preached to the dead. Let's start with that first statement, for this reason. For what reason? We'll go back to the verses we just read. In the verses we read at the very end of chapter 4, he says, In all of this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the excesses of dissipation, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Your effect in this world 
on the one hand, is to be an ambassador to Christ. But in some cases, in many cases, it will not have the effect of drawing people to faith. It will simply be a means of God witnessing against them, of revealing their sins so, so as to be righteous in judging them on some future day. That's all in God's control. We simply act as the light He has commanded us. But then before we get too depressed, before we assume that, oh, well, what's the point? He goes into the next verse and he says, For the gospel has been preached for this purpose. For what purpose? For the purpose that there would be some who would know the truth. That there would be an opportunity for faith to enter into the world and to be spread among men. That, in other words, your purpose in being a light and preaching the gospel ultimately is found in believers. Even if, in the meantime, you encounter those who would malign you and not receive it. That that shouldn't be a discouragement. But to the more controversial part of the verse, he says, it was preached to the dead. This statement, coming on the heels of what we just studied last week, leads some people to put it in the same context as last week. Remember last week, it was about Christ being in the prison with the the spirits. This is hell, in other words. So when we hear what we heard last week and we come to this verse, our mind tends to say, here we go again, preaching to the dead. He must be talking about Jesus' time under the earth in hell. But that's not what he's talking about. It's not what he's talking about at all. He's left that context entirely. He's talking here about preaching the gospel to the world, to the dead of the world. Who are the dead, therefore? Well, the dead here are the same people that Paul talks about, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Let me read you what Paul says. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. What we're talking about here is those who are spiritually dead. Not physically dead. Spiritually dead. The gospel was brought into the world by you, through you and I, through the apostles and all who have followed, so that a message of hope could be preached to people who are effectively the walking dead. God gives life to the dead. Before faith, and this is an important principle of the faith itself that I think a lot of people don't understand. Before you came to know the Lord, at whatever age, in my case it happened in my late 20s, before we came to know the Lord, we were the walking dead. The word here in the Greek is nekros, where we get necrophilia from, or words similar to that. It literally means a corpse. You were a walking corpse. I was a walking corpse. Now, physically we weren't dead, but God doesn't concern himself much with the physical. This body you and I have is going to last, what, maybe 70, 80 years, 90 if we're lucky? That's a blip in all of eternity. That has no significance to God for the sake of what he's trying to communicate in his word. What he's concerned about is the spiritual, the eternal. So from the eternal perspective, on the day we were born in the likeness of Adam, we inherited a spiritual nature that was dead in the true sense of the word. Dead meaning eternally separated from God, having no communion with Him, having nothing uh, to do with Him at all. Paul puts it this way in chapter 3, verse 10 of Romans. He said, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. That's the state of all men, all women, prior to faith. By the nature we inherited from Adam. So we were a walking dead man. We looked alive, but spiritually as God saw us, we were dead. So Peter's first principle here is that the gospel has been called to be preached to dead people. Now that's a very strange thing when you think about it. Because as Paul puts it in chapter 3 verse 11 of Romans, there is none who seeks for God. 
I'm here to tell you this morning, on the authority of Scripture, there is no such thing as a seeker. You ever heard seeker-friendly? Seeker-friendly churches, seeker-friendly ministries of one kind or another. It's an interesting idea, but at its root, it's based on the assumption that men and women naturally seek after God. They would point to the evidence in the fact that there are so many different religions, so many different people who seek religion. That must mean they're seeking God. We just have to show them God, and that's all it would take to get them to understand the truth. It's a good heart, but it's doctrinally wrong. There's no such thing as a seeker. What men and women do, of course, is seek after a God of their own image. However it's made. Buddhism, Taoism. We have more modern versions of it today, a new age thinking of one kind or another. But it's all at the same root. It all worships the same God, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. His particular methodology is if I can create a million different ways you worship the wrong God, they're all equally good to him. But from a human perspective, they look like different choices. But in reality, there's only two choices for who to worship. The enemy or the God of heaven, the God of the Bible. And in the way that Paul writes Romans chapter 3, he makes it very clear, quoting out of the Old Testament in fact, that there is no such thing as someone who by their own natural state seeks the one true living God. We are spiritually separated from him. We have nothing to do with him. We care nothing of him. In fact, we are his natural enemy. And we perceive him as such, even if we don't understand it consciously. But we take naturally after the one whom we follow, which is the enemy. As Paul put it at the end of uh, Ephesians, he said, we were once all sons of disobedience, sons of our father the devil, as Christ put it to the Pharisees. So what's going to solve that problem? Well, a gospel preached to dead people seems to be a pointless endeavor, doesn't it? Because after all, can a dead body physically raise itself back to life? No, and no more so can someone who is spiritually dead decide out of their own will in a moment, today I'm going to believe and follow the true living God. Remember what John chapter 1 said? We were born not of the will of man, not of the will of the flesh, but of God. There must be an act of God in order to change that heart. That's when Peter's second important principle out of the verses I read kicks in. He says, the dead, unbelieving dead, must be judged for their sin in the flesh. You notice that in verse 6? He says that though they are judged in the flesh as men, in that little aside, he just stated a second fundamental principle of the Christian faith. The first principle is that we were all born spiritually dead, enemies of God, hopeless in our condition, without any hope in this world. He says the dead, the unbelieving, in other words, must be judged for their sin in the flesh. That the wages of sin are death, in other words. That all who sin are due judgment. And God being perfect in judgment, as a just judge, He cannot overlook sin. I've used the expression of, you can't breathe underwater. If you and I were desiring to go into a pool today and despite what we might have been told, we just decided that, you know what? Today, I'm going to breathe underwater, so help me. Well, go for it. Stick your head under the water, see what happens. What we're learning in that experience, number one is, you can't breathe underwater. Number two, I don't care how much I want to be different than I am. I cannot will myself out of constraints that are naturally a part of who I am. I cannot will myself to be other than what I am. And God, omnipotent though He is, can can do no different. God cannot will Himself to be other than who He is. And who He is by nature is perfect. Perfect in justice. Perfect in love. Perfect in judgment. Perfect in mercy. It's a balancing act. I don't claim that he's all one or all the other, certainly. But what does it mean to be perfect in justice? 
We have a hard time with that concept because we don't live in a world with perfect justice. The guilty go free. The innocent go to jail sometimes. In perfect justice, that never happens, right? In a perfectly just system, if you're guilty, you always get the penalty. Always. That's what perfect justice means. God is who He is. And as, a, as the person or as the, as the God that He is, I should say, He cannot overlook sin. He cannot say, I know it's bad, I know I should judge it, but I'm just not going to judge it this time. That's imperfection. That's less than pure justice. So He has nothing but an obligation to re- react, to respond with judgment for the sake of those who would sin. It is the proper, appropriate penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. But because God desired something better for humanity, he provides a solution. At the end of chapter 4, verse 6, he says, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. There's the will of God again. What is it to to live in the Spirit? We're talking here about spiritual regeneration. To be born again of the Spirit. Remember Nicodemus in John's Gospel as he tries to understand what Jesus meant when he said, you must be born again. And he says, how can I get back on my mother's womb? Because you're thinking earthly, Nicodemus. You're thinking fleshly. You're thinking on this plane. Raise it to the spiritual plane and you'll understand what I'm talking about. You must be born again of spirit. You were born into a dead spirit from Adam. You must replace that dead spirit with a new living spirit that God Himself can place in you by faith. And that is the only way to receive the Father, to be in His presence again. You must be born again of the, of the spirit. That's what we mean when we say you're born again. So being born again is a spiritual change in our nature that God must do in His will by the power of the Holy Spirit. And He is prepared to do that for men and women. And we are the instrument, by God's choice, to take that message and to look for that rebirth, to look for that opportunity. Peter offers this, I believe, as encouragement, primarily. Encouragement so that those in the faith now who are about to be persecuted and probably maligning already will understand that what he's calling them to do in living out this new life is intended to find success, ultimately, in the hearts of some men and women. Look at how he ends this, how encouraging he does get in the end. Verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another, without complaint. And each one has received a special gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What he follows with here concerning the spread of the gospel, now are, I would argue, some of the most important pillars of the Christian walk. That if, if the first point he's made now is that the purpose of the church ultimately in following after Christ is to be obedient to God's will, to chart our life's course now by his will, not our own, and then in doing so, some will malign us, but yet it is also God's intent that we would be preaching the gospel to the world so that he can turn the dead to the alive. And now, he says, to those who are, who are understanding and willing to take on this role, he says, first of all, the end of all things is near. Isn't this really an appeal to human nature? How many of you cram for your tests right before the test date? Right? How many of us only wait till our finances are, are on the brink of disaster to put our budget in place? How many of us wait until the marriage is so rocky that now we have to spend some time 
counseling or communicating with our spouse, right? I think what Peter is saying is to anyone who understands the Christian walk, the end of all things is near, and therefore, you should take the same seriousness of purpose, the same sense of urgency into these commandments as someone who is about to face that end-of-term exam. But here's the trick. You know the date of the exam. You may see the bankruptcy date in the future. You may see some of these signs in real life. But in reality, in our Christian walk, you don't know when the end is coming. I mean, on the one hand, you could take all of us in the rapture. That could happen any moment. It could happen before we leave this room. Hallelujah. But individually, we all don't know the day of our death either. So whether we go by virtue of the rapture or whether we go individually, the end is always near. If you understand that, I mean, if you really believe that, if you don't walk around like most 20-year-olds and think they're invincible, if you really believe that, knowing that that is in fact the truth, it will change the decisions you make. I'm often fond of telling people, what if you got the word from God that Jesus was coming back one year from today and you were, you were absolutely sure of that? I would be willing to bet that the next 365 days would look very different than they're probably planning to look right now. Isn't that fair? Well, get this. If I could tell you that he was not coming back for another year, that would be the first time in history that any Christian knew they had a year. That would be the first time in history that any Christian could be sure it wasn't tomorrow. So take that into consideration as you plan the next 12 hours, much less the next 12 months. And he says, because of that reality, be sound in your judgment and be sober for the purpose of prayer. This lives out in my life in one very specific way. It kind of goes back to what we talked about a moment ago when we talked about sensuality. Well, like any man, truthfully, I would struggle at times, as we all do, with lustful thought or with a wandering eye or whatever might come along. And sometimes it's brought about because of an attractive person walking by. I mean, any man in this room will be honest enough to admit that that's a tendency for, for men. And one man I had in a, an accountability group one time gave me this piece of advice. He said, whenever that happens to him, as he catches himself in that moment, he turns it to prayer by praying for the woman. Now, he doesn't know what to pray about, but he trusts God will put it on his heart. If nothing else, he'll pray generally. It's a good technique. To me, it's a good illustration of this principle, though. Because the end is near, we're serious and sober about spiritual matters, about the need to be a watchful person in our walk at all times, to be ready to be useful. Because not only did he help him control his flesh in the moment, but he actually did something spiritually worthwhile. He prayed for a woman he would not have otherwise prayed for, perhaps. You see, the point of that is that it's, it's a way of being useful in God's will to doing the work that God may have you to do, and to not only do it consciously, mechanically, regularly, but even in moments when you slip and fall, looking for an opportunity to get right back on track and turn it to good. Not as some self-righteous, pious act, but because we honestly believe that if the Lord were to come back in the next five minutes, I'd much rather Him be able to mention the fact that, hey, that prayer you just spoke a minute ago, good job, than to have said the opposite. Peter says, because of that, we want to do a number of things well. Pray, show love, show hospitality, and contribute with our spiritual gifts. And with each of these directives, he gives us some sensible reasoning behind them. We won't take much more time. We're at the end. But I want to just go through this list very briefly. And I think what I've said already on the issue of prayer is sufficient enough. Then he goes on to love. He says love covers a multitude of sins. It's a favorite phrase. You've probably heard it in the culture many times. Here's what he's really saying, though. You know, when times are short and when the pressure is up, and considering that this church is about to undergo persecution, they're under both those circumstances, What you'll find at a premium is love. 
And I don't mean an eros kind of romantic love. That's not in view here. This is agape love. This is a self-sacrificial kind of love. Putting the needs of others before yourself. Think about wartime. When things are going bad in war and there's a lot of pressure on the civilian population and there's rationing going on, what is the thing you see, you see most often in those circumstances? Hoarding. A, se- a, a completely selfish view that says, at least I've got mine and no one else can come take it. He says, love in the midst of those circumstances will cover a multitude of sins. To the one who would be Christian in that circumstance, agape Christian, and show love and put others' needs above your own and support the church in the midst of that trial, that person's reflecting Christ's love better than anyone. And that person could have had a million faults. But I'll tell you that those who are receiving that agape love won't remember a single one of them. What they'll remember is, this person was there in my time of need. That's self-sacrificial agape love. Covers a multitude of sins. Then he says, be hospitable. What I love about this is, a lot of us are hospitable, right? It's the second part of that verse that's so hard. Without complaint. I can tell you a lot of times I've hosted in-laws or other family members in my home and you know, I'm being hospitable, but I'm not so sure about the without complaint part. That's when you really know if you're doing it with the right spirit. Finally, he gives a, a longer discussion here, or a slightly longer discussion, to serving in the church in our spiritual gift. This is my last point for the day. If there are two pieces of advice I would give to any Christian who endeavors, who desires to mature in their walk, who recognizes in themselves a need to move further in their walk, to be better than they are as a Christian, let's say, the two pieces of advice I would give any Christian are, first, a lifelong dedication to God's Word. There, there's no substitute for that. And there's nothing else that can come apart from building on a foundation of God's Word. But the second is equally important. The second is, serve in your spiritual gift. Serve. And not just any kind of service. Not random, I'm a helpful person, I'm here whenever you need me. But know your spiritual gift and serve the body of Christ in that spiritual gift. In addition to doing perhaps, other things. I look in my own life as an example. And I'll tell you that for all the time that I might have spent studying God's Word and trying to learn it and trying to apply it in my life, its real effect in maturing me did not kick in until I started to teach it. Now, part of that is just the reality of a teacher has to learn more than the students. But another part of it was the obligation to be a good model of what I taught of feeling the pressure that comes to bear on someone who stands in front of others and tells them what the God, Word of God is asking them to do, about the reality of hypocrisy in the life of someone who would take on that role. The maturing, in other words, that took part in me, took a part of me because I walked in my gift. And I can also tell you that as I've served in the body of Christ generally, if I were to chart my maturing in my faith from day one and I were to put it on a graph, I can tell you that where that curve really took off it coincides where I started to actually serve in my gift in the church and actually step out and do more than sit still in a pew every week. There's time to sit and listen. That's absolutely true. But then there's a time to move forward in the gift God's given you and participate in the body of Christ. If you will do that, it will be the case that you will be amazed at what God will do in your life. And it will happen sort of without you even thinking about it because God will do that work. But He wants someone who is willing to serve. Peter sums up the advice by saying no matter how you serve, whether in the case of gifts of utterance, like teaching, preaching, or encouragement. He talks about speech here. He means in any sense of an utterance gift. Or whether you serve in gifts of action, like service, or prayer, or even the, the gift of being able to give generously. That's a gift, we're told, in Scripture. Any of the ways in which God may have gifted you to serve. Whether you do it for the sake of speech or in service, he says, always give God the glory. Because it was by His hand that you were both available 
and able to do what you did. I make that a very consistent habit, and you've probably heard me do this on occasion. If you've said something about the teaching or if you've expressed thanks to me for something, and I always appreciate those words of encouragement, but I'm also mindful to say, well, give God the glory. Praise the Lord that He's done that. And it may sound mechanical. It may even sound a bit pious or like like it's a throwaway line. And I'll grant you that it's somewhat mechanical. I've had to train myself to do that. But the mechanical gives way eventually to a true heartfelt appreciation for what it means and a recognition that, in in fact, it is true. And it brings with it not just a humble spirit, but also an encouraged spirit to know that if it is, in fact, God doing the work, then what can't I do? Right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Where is it that I have a limitation if, according to God's will, He's given me an insight and a gift to go do something? He's not giving me that desire and gift so that I would fail. The glory is found in the way I might achieve good works to His glory by His power. Just be sure to give Him the glory for it. Go to the Lord in prayer as we remember the way He may choose to use us in this body or elsewhere, in our gift, according to our dedication to it, knowing the time is short, and being sober in our appreciation for what He's called us to do. Heavenly Father, thank You, Father, for the beautiful morning outside, the beautiful day that awaits us as we leave. And Father, as we go out and we prepare to enjoy it in the week to come, let us not be without cheer. Let us not be, Father, uh, without humor. But Father, let us just be sober and sound in judgment as You've called us to be. Enjoying the world as You've provided it and the friendships and fellowship we have in it. Uh, Enjoying the opportunity to serve You as You've granted it. But mindful, Father, that the times are short that the days are drawing to a close, whether for the earth as a whole or just us personally, Father. Every day is precious. You've called us into this walk. From amongst all who have walked and lived on this earth, Father, you have seen fit to call us your child and bring us to faith. And now we stand here, Father, ready to serve you. Let us not fail in that service, Father. By your power, call us to do great works. Father, call us to be a minister to others, an ambassador to the world, one who, by our light, can reflect you through us. Father, give us all those privileges. And then, Father, as we seek to fulfill those requirements, those expectations, Father, grant us the strength to do many great things in your name, according to your glory, never forgetting that we would pass that glory to you where it rightfully belongs. Lord, we are enjoying the study. I pray that the work of the Holy Spirit would continue in the weeks to come and that, if it be your will, we could return and finish. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.